0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We often feature topics on Smart Talk that relate to the adult criminal justice system, whether it be crime, the courts or prisons. But what doesn't get nearly as much attention is the juvenile justice system. And there are reasons for that, reasons that we'll discuss during today's program. Today, WITF begins a special real life, real issues series on juvenile justice. We're joined first by WITF's multimedia news director Tim Lambert, who has been working for months on juvenile justice. Tim, always a pleasure to have you on the program.
2: Great to be here, Scott.
1: All right, let's start with the, the basic question: uh, Why? Why are we? Why are we doing this? What was the uh, genesis behind it?
2: Well, I think that uh, what you mentioned there—that uh, the fact that the juvenile justice system sort of operates under this this cloak of confidentiality to to protect the uh, the the, the kids who are involved in the system. Um, So it was an opportunity for us to go behind the system, pull the curtain back a little bit, and uh, give people an idea exactly of how the system works. And we try to do that, as you'll hear over the next four days, uh, in a a series of reports, one that will explain how the system works, and the other three will actually be following an offender through the system.
1: And we're going to be hearing from that offender in, in just a few minutes. But what surprised you? What did you learn?
2: Uh, I think it was it was interesting to find out the different layers that are involved in the system to, to see the level of support that a juvenile offender has, uh, whether it's through uh, drug and alcohol treatment, whether it's through out of placement homes, whether it's through the probation office, whether it's through a mobile therapists. Uh, there are many layers that are involved in making sure that juvenile offenders um, get the get the treatment they need if there is an outlying circumstances to to what led them to commit a crime or to uh, be involved with the the law and and be put in the system to begin with. So I think that, to me, was was eye-opening.
1: As you said, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do this is juvenile justice... I hate to say behind a cloak of secrecy, because that makes it sound like there's some conspiracy or something, but no. The whole idea is that uh, these offenders are under the age of 18, still considered children. The idea is confidentiality. And that's one of the reasons that the public doesn't know a whole lot. Are there things that you heard during the course of your interviews and talking to people that uh, many people would look at and say, I didn't
2: know that? Uh, I don't think so much that uh, you'd say I didn't know that, but having sat in uh, dozens and dozens of of court sessions since November, um, it was surprising to see how quickly these cases are are kind of moved through the system. And there's good reason for that, which uh, your guest will will get into a little bit more in detail as the show goes on. But to see that, uh, you know, the judge will talk to um, the the public defender will talk to the probation office. We'll talk to uh, the treatment uh, facility. We'll talk to uh, someone about the mental health assessment of the offender. So I think uh, seeing all the different perspectives that come into um, the case w- was fascinating.
1: As we said, uh, Tim has been working on this for like the last six months now. Most of that time, or much of that time, I should say, has been spent following uh, a young woman who um, offended uh, as a juvenile and she's now 18. Her name is Brandy Kiefer, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have just a, we hear from Brandy here. She talks about, she reflects on what got her in trouble in the first place.
3: She would say comments to get me in trouble, (coughs) but I was high constantly, so it was just like, all right, I don't even care, like I'm high. And then the first week of school started, and she
2: tried to get me in trouble. Those comments set off Brandy's hair-trigger temper and a chain of events that led to her probation, even though she claims she warned her teachers about the problem. Her description goes from introspection one minute to bitterness the next. And
3: she was literally right outside of the door. But I sat here and I debated to myself, is this worth it? And I got tired of debating and I said, f*** it. And I just walked out there and I beat her up. I regret it so much. I wish I would have never did it. It messed up a lot of things for me, a lot.
1: Wow, Tim. I mean, that pretty much goes right to the heart of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Brandy uh, is somebody that uh, has had struggles, uh, and in one short period, from July of last year to the incident that happened at the on the tenth day of school at uh, at Abraxis, um, she was she was involved with the retail theft. She was involved in underage drinking. Uh, she has you know a drug issue. Uh, then, of course, she had the the harassment and assault from from uh, what happened at school. So. So she went through the system starting in November and, and I was in, in the courtroom for that first day and uh, I've been talking with her and her mom ever since. So,
1: how long has she been in the system? Six months. Okay. You...
2: This was someone, yeah, who came through the children and youth services uh, part of things. She was never actually in the juvenile justice system, and she's had some problems, as you'll hear over the next three days, um, that uh, eventually resulted in, in her her being uh, put into the system.
1: But she does say that she's motivate, motivated to uh, complete the program, so let's listen to that.
3: Before, when I was in the system. It didn't matter what they said to me, but like now it's like, what can I do? I don't want to be on probation when I turn 18. Like, I don't want my charges to be on my record because I want to be a paralegal. I can't be a paralegal with charges of assault on me or harassment. I'm doing what I can to get that record erased and for me to be off before I turn 18, I'm doing everything I can.
1: So what does everything she can, what does it entail?
2: Well, I don't want to give too much away since the stories will be on over the next three days, but uh, I think there was a level of accountability that came into play once she got into the juvenile justice system, once she realized, hey, I'm going to turn 18 soon, and I need to reevaluate a lot of things in my life. And what was interesting in talking to her over the years, um, like I said, she she had a sobriety issue, uh, and she had a problem with drugs, and, and you sort of see... As she's going along, her mind getting clearer and clearer as she sort of gets away from, from uh, her friends who were involved with drugs, as she gets away from using drugs. And, uh, and and it was just fascinating to watch where, you know, she was sort of working her, her way through these issues. Um, again, not giving too much away, but uh, this is someone who, who made some progress in it, and it's fascinating to see.
1: What you'll be hearing over the next few days here on Smart Talk and with uh, Tim's reports as well... Uh, You'll hear a lot about Cumberland County. Why Cumberland County?
2: Well, Cumberland County was the, the place we were able to get access uh, to to the different levels of the juvenile justice system, thanks to the uh, Cumberland County Bar Foundation. And uh, we were able to uh, sit in on hearings. Uh, we were able to talk to the probation department. We were able to talk to the district attorney's office, the public defender's office. Um, we talked to, we were actually out in the field with a probation officer when he met with Brandy. We were with a mobile therapist when she met with Brandy. We were in River Rock Academy, which is a school for kids who, who have struggled to uh, to fit in in their high school so we were in there and we we had a chance to follow all this along so it was uh, like we said this is a system that works with confidentiality and and we were able to get access into some of these discussions and really kind of see how they work to help offenders
1: yeah very unusual that uh, media can get this kind of access and uh, you, you really did get to see a lot of what the many reporters don't get to see
2: yeah yeah exactly and like I said just sitting in and Watching the sort of work that a mobile therapist does, um, and and go through the sort of things, and the and the uh, the rapport they have with the offender. I mean, the the the, the mobile therapist really became someone who helped Brandy you know, navigate some of these challenges she was facing. And of course, you had the probation officer as well who would keep her on track. And also, you know, again, you have to form a certain relationship with the person. And sometimes you have to play tough guy and some, you know, good cop, bad cop almost. And and to watch that navigate uh, Brandy, who has sort of this this tremendous personality, but also, you know, has this sort of temper and, and reacts differently to different social situations and kind of watch that develop. Um, it just was something that uh, you just don't get a chance to... <laughs> To see all the time
1: so your reports begin when
2: tomorrow morning
1: okay and uh what can what can you expect
2: uh well tomorrow you'll hear an explanation of how the system works like i said we had we had access to all the different levels that were involved in the system and then starting on wednesday you'll hear brandy's journey through uh, probation over the last six months
1: wits Multimedia media news director tim lambert tim thanks for uh, very much for describing what we're doing this week
2: thank you very much
1: you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
2: Support for Real Life, Real Issues, Juvenile Justice comes from the Cumberland County Bar Foundation.
0: Smart Talk is supported by Capitol Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and 9 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at PinnacleHealth.org slash MyHeart.
1: Welcome back to Smart Talk. Now let's begin our conversation on juvenile justice. We have three guests in our studio today to provide an overview of the justice system. Two of them from Cumberland County, but Richard Steele is executive director of the Juvenile Court Judges Commission in Pennsylvania. Samuel Miller is chief juvenile probation officer with Cumberland County. And Ron Toro is a juvenile public defender in Cumberland County. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today.
4: You're welcome. Nice to be here, Scott. Great to be here, Scott.
1: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, R- Richard Steele, Rick Steele, let me uh, begin with you. Cumberland County is a little bit different. We're going to establish how it is a little bit different in a good way uh, here in, in just a few minutes. But You work statewide. Mm -hmm. What's the purpose? How is the, the, what are you looking to do? The ultimate goal of juvenile justice in Pennsylvania?
5: Well, Pennsylvania, uh, since 1995, has had some goals that were established through um, uh, an act that occurred. Act uh, 33 in 1995 that changed a lot of the way in which we focus on juvenile justice. And most specifically, it's what we call balanced and restorative justice. And so what it says is that ultimately there are three areas that that we need to concentrate. Every time we have a referral to the juvenile court and there's attention given to that youth, we also need to give attention to others. And so the attention really is around uh, uh, accountability, uh, restorative accountability in most cases, meaning that there's a victim every time that there's an offense and accountability... As opposed to a punishment type of a focus, really needs to be how is it that we address the needs and the losses of that victim? And so accountability is one of our goals. Competency development means that when a youth comes into our juvenile justice system, we will uh, put things into place that will allow them to leave our system better able to support themselves and their community than when they came in. And finally, community protection is also a major concern. And so all three of those areas are major focuses of our juvenile justice system.
1: The terminology even is Mm -hmm. different between adult criminal court and the the juvenile system. It is. And most people, let's face it, most people get their legal knowledge from Uh, SVU uh, you know law and order or you know courtroom scenes that they've seen on television or in movies but it's not the same. The adult, I mean, the, the adult system is very different than the juvenile system.
5: Mm-hmm. It, it is in many ways, although there are similar there are similar processes that we go through. We do use different terminology. For for example, in a in an adult court, there's a sentence. Where in juvenile court, there's a disposition. In adult court, there's a conviction. In juvenile court, it's what we call an adjudication. So there are significant differences, and there have been. The first juvenile courts came into play in eighteen. 18- uh, 1899 I believe was the first juvenile court in Chicago and Pennsylvania's first juvenile act uh, was in 1901 and, what it, and these were based on the fact that we understand that kids are different that, that in many many ways and that's been supported most recently through the adolescent brain research that goes on that shows that that, that the brain does not develop fully uh, until around mid 20s 25 26 years old and so the part of the brain that does not develop is the part of the brain that really talks it looks at or allows us to make good decisions that keeps us from from jumping off the bat uh, that keeps us from making uh, those decisions that hopefully we're able to make as adults simply can't be made often on the part of a juvenile. So the focus is that it is different, that kids are different than adults, and as a result, we need to treat them differently moving forward. I think historically, and I think my, my, my colleagues here might agree to this, that generally speaking, if you compare the adult system to the juvenile system, you often think of the juvenile system as being focused more on rehabilitation and the adult system more on, on, on a punitive uh, response.
1: Quick question about that uh, before we start talking about the process and, and uh, all those other things. Uh, you know, I, uh, I've heard, we've heard a lot about restorative justice here uh, in recent years, uh, talking about adult offenders for the most part. <clears throat> Why don't we use some of these same tactics in the adult criminal uh, justice system as opposed to just with juveniles?
5: Well, actually, I think what we're starting to see is that more and more of the on the adult side, we're seeing more responses that are that are more juvenile. I think. Later in the show, we might talk about some of the uh, programs and activities and, and, and um, uh, efforts that we've made in the juvenile justice system to reform. And what I'm starting to see is that more of the reform efforts in juvenile justice are starting to be reflected on the adult side. So you do see more and more jurisdictions on the adult uh, side look at restorative types of practices as effective ways to address issues uh, that go beyond prisons.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Sam Miller, you are the chief probation officer in Cumberland County, juvenile probation officer. This is the question I probably should leave to last, but I'll jump it forward. Does it work? When we're talking about the restorative justice and we're talking about drug treatment, we're talking about uh, anger management, a lot of these things that adult, those charged in the adult system don't have access to until after they've been punished, does it work?
4: Well, my short answer to that is yes, it does. I
1: need a little longer than that. It's,
4: <laughs> it's certainly a challenge. Uh, when you're working with anybody that's been a parent and raised teenagers uh, knows that uh, working with youth of that age is a real challenge. Um, we receive youthful offenders that have uh, committed an offense and typically are 15, 16, 17 years of age. So in addition to the normal progression of issues that occur while you're an adolescent, uh, they many times have deep, deeper seated uh, issues that we have to explore, we have to assess, and we have to deal with them on. Uh, so it's not easy, uh, but we do have a good process, and our data shows that um, our outcomes do reflect success for most of these kids. Uh, most youth that get themselves in trouble uh, aren't going to get in trouble again. They are going to go on and and um, evolve and receive their education, become productive citizens. Is that
1: how you measure success?
4: Um, we look at success in a number of ways. Um, there does need to be some benchmarks and, of course, recidivism. Getting in trouble with the law again is something that we study and that we look at. And our data reflects that uh, since 2008, 2009, Uh, recidivism has decreased in Cumberland County Uh, we've done a real good job of helping youthful offenders not get in trouble again Uh, that doesn't mean there's absolute certainty with any one particular case you know some kids do come in multiple times and do progress to the uh, adult criminal justice system but we specifically look at look at the results and the outcomes and uh, we measure our success in in some degree uh, based on that
1: Mm As a juvenile probation officer, how is your job different? How is it different working with kids rather than those on probation uh, or, you know, adults who have uh, who have committed a crime? Well,
4: I think there's a number of different directions I could take that question, but here's what I'm going to say about it. Um, it's a profession that really requires some passion and commitment beyond the scope of— uh, what I would call a normal nine to five job um, there's really an investment, and you can tell almost right away when a probation officer's hired and begins to work in the field within the first six months. you can tell if they're cut out to continue doing it because it's not easy, and it's not that eight to four nine to five job there's after hours commitments if a kid needs you and needs to get a hold of you. Um, you need to be there to fulfill that mission to uh, handle whatever crisis or whatever issues are going on. And um, I think that the most important piece of being a juvenile probation officer that I can define is that um, personal investment along with your education and professionalism and that passion uh, for that avocation. It goes beyond the scope of just uh, waiting for your paycheck every
1: two weeks. Mm -hmm. Ron Turo. You're a public defender, and I know that, and I've heard some of Tim's interviews and talking to so many people in Cumberland County, and something that comes up often during those conversations: kids for cash. There was a uh, an infamous case in northeastern Pennsylvania where there was a judge that was sending juvenile offenders to private uh, facilities because there was a kickback. There was money involved. Uh, and one of the, the the one of the things that wasn't happening there often is that many of those juveniles weren't represented by an attorney. Now I understand that you know that kids for cash you know case has had some impact around the state, but it was something you were doing in Cumberland County anyway that everyone had a defender there, had a lawyer, had representation, but. Talk about how much of an impact that case has had and why that is uh, kind of the, the poster for what went wrong.
6: Well, um, you're right. It's, 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 it's actually ironic, Scott, because uh, as, as Rick and Sam know, Pennsylvania has been the leader in juvenile justice probably for the last 100 years or more. And for something like that to happen in Luzerne County um, was, was absolutely... Um, <laughs> Astonishing. I remember I first learned about it when I was working with a group of attorneys. We were putting together what's today called JDAP, a Juvenile Defenders Association of Pennsylvania. We're probably one of the only states that actually have an organized bar of uh, attorneys that specialize in juvenile justice. In Cumberland County, from, well, I've been, I've been doing this work for 20 years, um, we always presumed every child to be indigent which then in, in, in turn um, caused them to have an attorney. We've never had a child stand up in front of one of our judges without a, a lawyer next to him. Um, we know, and, and Rick can also verify this as well, we know that having attorneys in the courtroom, having competent counsel, having well-trained professionals help these kids not only creates a good result for the kid, but makes the system work and work extremely well and in Cumberland County it does we we have
1: We'll talk about that talk, talk about why Cumberland County you said Pennsylvania is one of the leaders in juvenile mm-hmm. justice Cumberland County is one of the leaders across the state
6: uh, the leader Scott <laughs> <laughs> C- Cumberland County has historically been I'd say ahead of the curve on a lot of issues not just on the defense side but on the way the probation department operates the way the judges operate, Um, we have an extremely well-reasoned, well-oiled machine that's running in Cumberland County. I don't mean to call it a machine, but when a child comes into our system, he or she is going to be given the best of the best. They're going to get the best lawyer, um, usually me. Um, They're going to to definitely get the best probation office. Um, I think I could argue that they're going to get the best judge we have two juvenile court judges that are both excellent that handle these cases. And as Sam said, the outcomes prove um, what we know. The other thing that we do in Cumberland County, which nobody else does is, and we can talk about this if you want more, but we have an automatic expungement policy that is the best in the United States. When a kid finishes up his or her probation, the Cumberland County Juvenile Probation Office tracks that case, and when it's appropriately timed, Produces the paperwork for the judge to sign to destroy the prints, the photographs, all the records. That is so unusual throughout the country. And uh, again, Rick could tell us mm-hmm. if there's any, I don't think anybody else in Pennsylvania is doing uh, it.
5: Rick? No? no, no, not too many. There are different levels of, of uh, expungement <laughs> proceedings. Cumberland County, in my mind, tends to lead terms of taking, uh, there's so many different ways that that occurs, Cumberland County makes sure and and pays attention Uh, to that process. Why is that a good thing? Because, I mean, there are probably members of the public, you know, people who are
1: thinking about this from a victim's point of view Mm -hmm. are saying, well, you know, I don't care if they're under 18. If
5: they've committed a crime, I want to make sure that people know about it. Well, the, the biggest issue, of course, is the fact that there are a number of collateral consequences to having a juvenile record that ultimately can harm when that's not the intent. And so if our intent is to uh, rehabilitate or habilitate in some cases and to move these kids forward so that going into their adult lives, they have a clean slate, they can move forward, uh, many times a record can get in the way of that. Even though it's unintentional, there are a number of ways in which it can harm and impede kids in moving forward with their lives. Ron, I saw you shaking your head when I asked that question.
6: Well, I, I, I was just thinking that, uh, and I understand from certain uh, People's perspective that they may want to say you know this kid he, he or she did something bad we should know about it as Sam said what we're trying to do is have a kid come through our system be able to be a fully sustained adult get a job get an education and these juvenile records can affect both of those things we do not want a kid to become an adult offender period That is the driving focus for everything we do, which is why we develop competencies for these kids, which is why we try to expunge records so that when they apply to college, they can get college loans. That can be affected by a juvenile record so that they can get a job and uh, they're not held back by that. If you have a kid that comes out and has a record and can't get a job or can't get into school, guess what? He might get into the adult system. So it's extraordinarily important that expungement happens. And it's extraordinarily important that these kids come out with the tools they need so they'll never offend again.
1: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Today is day one of uh, WITF's Real Life, Real Issues Juvenile Justice Series. We're talking with Richard Steele, Executive Director of the Juvenile Court Judges Commission in Pennsylvania, Samuel Miller, Chief Juvenile Probation Officer with Cumberland County, and Ron Turo, Juvenile Public Defender in Cumberland County. Throughout the week, we'll be talking with uh, Dave Freed, who is Cumberland County's District Attorney. We'll be talking with the uh, Juvenile judge in Cumberland County. Also uh, on the statewide level we'll be talking about uh, talking with some of those who work with the families, work with the offenders, work with their families. You heard uh, Tim Lambert mention the term mobile therapist. Uh, We'll be talking with a mobile therapist as well. These are all things that are coming up throughout the week. If you have a question or comment give us a call 1-800-729-7532 Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org You also can leave a question or a Comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1 800 729 7532. Sam Miller, what the three of you have described, but uh, uh, especially in Cumberland County. It sounds as if there's a real team approach to this. And something I wanted to, to mention, I mentioned that Dave Free, the district attorney, will be on the program a little bit later. The prosecutors have a role in this as well. It's not just like, okay, lock them up and throw away the key. I know that there are many people who think that that's what prosecutors want to do. That's their ultimate goal. But there is a real team approach to this, right?
4: Oh, that's absolutely correct, um... You know, Dave Freed back in 2002, I believe, was serving as an assistant district attorney. And it was through his motivation that um, the, uh, our current diversion program, the youth aid panel program, was actually initiated by the district attorney's office through a grant. After a two-year grant, the program was transferred over to the juvenile probation office. Um, Dave has continued to be a big supporter of diverting youth from uh, more extensive penetration into the system a lot of the data out there shows that if you're able to effectively uh, treat youth and restore the victim without um, providing a permanent record to the uh, offender and without drawing them further into the process um, if you're able to do that you have a higher likelihood of success Mm -hmm. Um, so Dave's been a big supporter of that program in Cumberland County through the use of um, the youth aid panel and um, a mechanism called consent decrees were able to divert on an annual basis up to 80 percent of the youth and effectively deal with them.
1: Okay, divert. Because that's where I was going to get to mm-hmm. next. A lot of these things people would recognize as being settled before it actually, that doesn't go to trial in a, in a juvenile case, but before it actually sees a courtroom.
4: Well, diversion can be a little bit of a, a misleading word in that they're still receiving services. Many of these youth are still under probation supervision but they don't get that permanent record they get the same benefits potential benefits from the system uh that they would otherwise and they don't get any negative uh you know stigma Uh, it's only through Dave's permission and his support of the program that we've been able to do this in Cumberland County Uh, without that team approach without uh, that collaborative effort and that recognition I think on his part that most kids do deserve a second chance now he looks at that kind of stuff very carefully obviously the type of crime and things of that nature are important in the decision-making process and he does weigh in on the front end of every uh, offender referral in Cumberland County he does Provide a recommendation for us, and then we have ongoing discussions as we process and gather data. So the district attorney's office is heavily involved and has a significant
1: impact. Yeah, I understand that uh, district attorney uh, Freed looks at each individual case, uh, but Ron, it is, you know, our system is adversarial. I mean, again, we go back to the courtroom scene. Uh, We have a a defender. We have a defense lawyer. We have a prosecutor. And, again, it's nothing like it is on TV, especially in the juvenile system. So even though there's a team approach, at the same time, it is adversarial as well.
6: Absolutely. And and before I go to that, I just want to echo what Sam said. Uh, Dave Freed has been a... um, a major player and a, and a, and a very positive influence in our system because he he does recognize that the kids are different that they need to be treated different and they need the opportunities especially first-time offenders to come through and, and, and get out of our system without a record we wouldn't have our expungement program without Dave's uh, involvement in that because he has to sign off on all those cases so but to, to your point um I work very closely with the juvenile prosecutors in Cumberland County, Um, but when we get to a case that either we can't agree on a resolution, the child might say, I didn't do it, or whatever, um, then my job is sort of the standard defense attorney thing. I have to make sure that the Commonwealth has to try its case and has to prove the child to be guilty, essentially, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. One difference is we don't have jury trials, so all our cases... That's
1: right. No, there's one thing I wanted to point out. No jury trials.
6: No jury trials. And that may or may not be seen by some as a deficit of our system. There are states that actually allow jury trials for juveniles under certain circumstances, but we do not have them. And I would say for the most part, at least in my experience, that that has been okay. because our judges take these cases very seriously, and, and they they do put the Commonwealth to to its burden. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so, yes, um, many of my cases are, again, in sort of the traditional adversarial approach. I would say the vast majority, though, are not. And, and we're able to, as a team, um, between the probation officer, myself, and the prosecutor, work out a resolution that seems to be appropriate, and then we take that to the judge and uh, – Hopefully he'll agree with that, and then off we go from there.
1: We have a phone call from Fred in Lebanon. Fred, you're on the air.
6: Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, The question is, if all records, fingerprints and all are expunged, as the kids then get into adulthood, how do you measure success in terms of recidivism? (laughs)
5: I'll take that. Well, it's an interesting question. It's a very good question. It's one that we struggled with not more than a few years ago. And what we've been able to do through uh, the development of rules of juvenile court procedure, there are exceptions to certain pieces of the record that can be kept for for particular reasons. And one of those reasons uh, is for uh, research purposes. Also, it's interesting, you know, that even when a case is expunged, that that record is available down the road to a district attorney or others for purposes of processing as an adult. So even though that record is not available generally to folks, different entities have different access to certain portions of that record into the future. And some of that to, to, to your question, is around research as well. So we are able to establish uh, more accurate recidivism rates for, for these youth uh, down the road, even if they've been expunged.
1: Thank you for your call, for That, that is a good question. And you said when you, you, you wrestled with it. How did you re- I mean, describe that?
5: Well, it's interesting because we uh, the the expungement practices are different from county to county. And where it really jumped out at us is a number of years back when we started actually measuring recidivism rates. And we were finding recidivism rates not just statewide but also for individual counties. And recidivism rate, of course, by by definition is uh, whether or not these youth are being rearrested se- within several years of being having their case closed. And so a county like like uh, Cumberland County, that 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 expunged so many of their cases. When we looked at the existing cases that were left, they tended to be the more serious, the more deep end kids, and all of a sudden their recidivism rates looked a lot higher than what other counties did. So we had to somehow extrapolate the numbers uh, of of uh, expungements that occurred, and it really didn't give us a very uh, a very solid case around the measurement of recidivism, except for those cases that weren't expunged. So we didn't want to, in effect punish a county for something we felt we very strongly supported. And so we've now been able, through working with uh, the Administrative Office of the Pennsylvania Courts and the Rules of Juvenile Court Procedure Committee, we've changed those rules that allow us now to follow that up for purposes of research.
6: It, 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 let, me make, let me mention too, Scott, that uh, j- just so y- your listeners understand, um, the serious cases, the, the, the kids that are adjudicated delinquent and have essentially a juvenile record. Cannot seek an expungement until they have been off probation for five years and remain crime free. So, so that everybody understands, it's not uh, um, there are the, the, the more minor cases that we resolve, as Sam mentioned, on what we call diversion cases, consent decrees. Uh, the rules in, in the law allows those cases to be expunged. What we do is we expunge them when they turn eighteen and they're off probation, and they successfully completed. But if a kid has a record adjudication of delinquency that kid has to finish his probation and the clock starts ticking for five years and they can't be arrested as an adult so it's not giving somebody a false cover it's giving them an opportunity if they take advantage of that opportunity they stay out of trouble for five years then they can have the expungement occur. Uh,
1: Sam, you may be well. I I think the three of you could answer this question. But let me ask you, since you uh, have uh, young people that you you work with, what kind of crimes are we talking about? I mean, uh, is there, because the opioid epidemic, we hear so much about that. But I understand that uh, very often it's more adults that are involved in the opioid uh, situation, using opioids. But what kind of crimes are being committed?
4: Well, it's exactly what you would expect. It's the full range. I mean, it really is. Um, now, we don't have any large urban center in Cumberland County, uh, but I have to tell you, with technology and the uh, availability of kids to connect with each other from other jurisdictions and stuff, um, we really have experienced the same Uh, range of offenses that you would see just about anywhere. And I will say this, although the volume is in the adult criminal justice system in terms of the opioid epidemic, it is there with us also. Uh, Every week, every week we're dealing with juveniles that are involved with uh, the use of heroin, or other opioids, you know, uh, prescription pain medications, things of that nature. It is, in fact, very impactful. We also have our share of youth that are involved in um, what I would consider to be uh, the more serious violations involving firearms, assaults, aggravated assaults, robberies, things of that nature. Um, A typical offense in Cumberland County, though, is probably a property crime, um, stealing, uh, you know, theft, also, simple possession of marijuana or possession of uh, drug paraphernalia, um, criminal mischiefs, things of that nature. So those are the bulk in terms of the type of offenses we receive, but we receive burglaries and violent offenses and assaults and things of that nature.
1: I, I understand from you know, Tim's interviews and some of the people that I've talked to that you're also seeing more sex-related crimes, maybe even with family members correct
4: yeah that is true now I think it's always been um, something we've had to deal with over the years in Cumberland County it's always been there but of course with everything that's happened in recent years and the spotlight being um, shown by the Sandusky
1: uh, more reporting uh,
4: yeah yeah, there is more reporting Um, we do have our share of sexual offenders Um, What we do find in Cumberland County, we're very fortunate in that we have some local service providers that have been very effective at treating the type of sex offending behavior that we see, Um, but we have some of the most serious offenders. We just recently had a youth that uh, uh, was committed under what they call the Act 21 uh, mechanism. Uh, because they were such a serious offender that um, they were civilly committed to uh, continue ongoing treatment. Uh, So we have the full range of those also. um, But it is something I will tell you that most of the data out there shows that um, sex offending behavior with juveniles is significantly different in most cases than sex offending behavior with adults. There is more of an opportunity for rehabilitation, for a change in behavior. It's looked at very seriously, and obviously uh, therapy is needed. Um, But there is a lower recidivism rate for juvenile sex offenders than there is on the adult side of the ledger.
1: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. It's day one of WITF's Real Life, Real Issues Juvenile Justice Series here on Smart Talk. We'll be talking about uh, juvenile justice uh, throughout the week. And as you just heard, uh, Tim Lambert's uh, series of reports uh, begin tomorrow. Uh, joining us today, Ron Toro, Juvenile Public Defender in Cumberland County. Sam Miller, Chief Juvenile Probation Officer in Cumberland County. And Richard Steele, Executive Director of Juvenile Court Judges Commission in Pennsylvania. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, one 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Ron Tura, you wanted to follow up on the discussion we were just having with uh, Sam about uh, the sex crimes.
6: Well, uh, yes. Um, the research in the last couple of years has shown um, unequivocally that, that kids that commit sex offenses, um, generally with proper treatment, will not re-offend, and that is a completely different paradigm than what we see on the adult side. Older offenders um, have a much higher recidivism rate, and one of the things that has happened in Cumberland County especially is that we have begun treating these kids and their families in the community, in their homes. We don't take them out, try to fix them, and then reinject them back in. We use a program called SPIN. Um, it's it's one of, by one of our providers. They do a very, very comprehensive evaluation of each kid that has a sexual offense charged. If they determine that they can treat this child in the community, in their home, they begin a very intensive, I guess, Sam, uh, maybe a year long in some cases. But tracking those cases, we have seen an incredible very, very low recidivism rate. I mean, I, I'm not sure that we've gone to the point of saying it's zero, but it's it's really, really excellent. And it saves the community money, and it saves the community from, from having other victims. So it, it provides, as Rick was talking about, we're, pr- we're protecting victims, we're pr- protecting the community, and we're helping the kid, because uh, if that kid graduates to adult sex offense then the citizens of, of, of the state of Pennsylvania will be paying for many years to incarcerate that person.
1: We have an email here from Dominic in Carlisle. The juvenile justice system does a lot of work for kids in the system, helping them with the present situation as well as setting them up for a better future. But what about the steps the system and BAR are doing to prevent children from committing crimes to begin with, reaching out to middle and high schools before they uh, commit a crime?
6: I, I can answer that from one program because actually the very reason that the three of us are here today and why you're doing this series is because the Cumberland County Bar Foundation, which is the the charitable um, outreach arm of the Cumberland County Bar Association, has begun a program where we have pulled together um, a representative uh, high school kid from every high school in Cumberland County. That very group is working with, you, with your organization, Scott, WITF, to produce a series of vignettes and, and um, cautionary information that they're going to take back to their high schools and try to explain to other kids, so it's peer-to-peer, why getting involved in the juvenile justice system is a bad idea. So the foundation um, began that program and we received funding from it from a couple sources including uh, uh, Mrs. Ann Hoffer who has been a great uh, advocate of juvenile justice, her husband was our former president judge and juvenile court judge, and also the Stewart Foundation in Carlisle, they helped fund this project. And in fact, I think it's tomorrow our kids are coming here to WITF to actually shoot a video. And begin the process of of getting this together. So there is outreach. Um, I think Sam um, has gone out and talked to various groups too, but there's so much intense work that has to be done when an offender comes in. It would be nice to have more of an outreach program and try to reach kids, but I don't know that we've done that successfully other than we're trying out this new program. Well,
5: go ahead, Rick. I just wanted to mention that that statewide, it's very similar to what's going on in Cumberland County. We know. Uh, very clearly that if we have an effective juvenile justice system we can't operate in a vacuum and so we also need to pay attention to both diversion and prevention programs that are out there that's why the pennsylvania commission on crime and delinquency Uh, throws many resources into the whole concept of prevention. There's a great deal of research out there about what they call these blueprint programs that are effective in dealing with at-risk kids before they become involved with the juvenile justice system, which is all of our goals. And so uh, there's a place called the Epicenter at Penn State University that specifically is funded through PCCD, uh, to provide additional programming development around the use of these blueprint programs. Uh, there's a great deal of research out there about how these kids medi- or, um, motivate into or move excuse me, move into the juvenile justice system. If we can do anything to motivate kids to re- to stay out of there, we're much better served. Let's take a phone call from Tim
1: in New Holland. Tim, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Um, actually,
5: what I did have uh, interestingly enough, the conversation, Moved to the area that I was interested in, uh, you know, prevention, and uh, I was going to ask,
1: uh, you know, so what what programs are there uh, so we can uh, instill, you know, some positive, uh, uh, some positive things in our in our youth, and uh, certain things to to get them, and and you use the word motivated to get them to to be motivated to do the right thing. I understand there are many factors affecting them, and that's basically why they are in the uh, the system. And, uh, so I I would like to see some sort of, um, a, a state sponsored or state run, um, program that would get these kids in and, and give them, you know, the tools they need to, um, know to be successful Mm -hmm. hey tim thank you very much for your call you kind of answered his question but i will follow up we have an email from a listener along those same lines but how it's different is uh, this listener wanted to know the role of parents said now you know you talk about uh, what you do to work with the kids who have offended and who are in the system but let's face it many of these children come from broken homes, come from not the best backgrounds in the world, and may even see their own parents that are committing crimes, uh, offending. What role do the parents have, and if a a child does come from a situation like that, will you work with parents?
4: Well, um, I'll handle that. Uh, Obviously, they're a big part of everything we do uh, in dealing with an offender um it's really uh, a package deal um we do our data does show that offenders who are from homes of single parents are more likely to recidivate Uh, we do see parents as an important resource so we include them in the treatment process Uh, we solicit their uh, support their collaboration Um, You're absolutely right. A lot of these issues are prevalent in a family as opposed to just in an offender. So um, I will say this. When youth are referred to our office, um, we do what's referred to as an evidence-based assessment that focuses on specific areas, one of which is family circumstances and parenting. And we're able to evaluate at the end of that assessment for each individual youth, whether they're high risk moderate risk, or low risk in terms of the uh, the overall assessment, as well as individual categories like family circumstances. And for youth that are um, high risk and sometimes moderate risk in family circumstances, we do have community-based programming that uh, one is a blueprint program, multi-systemic therapy that works with the family and helps improve the situation in the home.
1: Later in the week, I uh, speak with uh, Judge Placey, who is one of uh, the juvenile judges in in Cumberland County, and he told me that unless a parent is there or a guardian is there with the offender, the case doesn't go forward, that he requires uh, family members or a parent especially to be there because they're going to be part of it.
6: Absolutely, Scott. Uh, uh, In every case, the the parent is is summoned uh, on the front end, actually summoned to the probation office to bring their child in to do uh, what we call an intake, and uh, that begins the process. When we go to court, the parents have to come. Um, I will say that I have seen incredible turnarounds in family situations thanks to the good work the probation office directs and and uses um, these these wonderful professionals Um, it used to be that what we did in our system is bad family take the kid out put him into a facility quote fix him bring him back in he goes into the same situation guess what all over again so now the family-based counseling that happens Um, And and sometimes the counseling focuses on the parents, and many times it does. You know, like you mentioned, the parents may have drug issues. They may have anger management issues. There may be unemployment or whatever, um, broken homes. So that counseling is designed to help repair the family, and it's ironic that sometimes the offender who comes in is actually going to create a better environment for himself because we're able to get in there and do good work with that family. I'm not saying we can fix them necessarily, but we put the resources that we believe are appropriate, and that has helped hundreds if not thousands of families, certainly in our county.
5: Rick? I think it's important to note also that Pennsylvania's Juvenile Act allows for a disposition or a sentencing in the adult term. A disposition can involve court orders directing parents to become involved and active in the interventions. Beyond that, whether they're court ordered or not, it's very clear that engaging families and engaging parents is the most effective way to move forward. And and where we're able to successfully do that, regardless of the circumstances of the home, the outcomes are much better. I only have about two minutes, and there's a lot I'd like to cover in those two (laughs) minutes. But a question from a
1: listener, Uh, what your operating budget is in Cumberland County and how it compares with other counties that have similar programs
4: well we're really cost-effective in Cumberland County Um, I can answer that in in, um, two different ways actually Um, our operational budget which is what the uh, county expends on the salaries benefits of probation officers uh, is well over a million dollars but perhaps even more significantly uh, we spend well over two million dollars or about two million dollars a year annually on service providers treating youth that's for out-of-home placements as well as community-based placements now the state reimburses a large portion of that but there is um, out-of-county pocket cost um, so it's not an inexpensive proposition. What we found each year, I do annual budgets. Uh, we found that Cumberland County is the most cost-effective class three county in the state in terms of ratio of monies expended on the number of moderate or high-risk offenders. So we're very proud of that. What that shows is we're using our money effectively. And the last thing I'll throw in there as a caveat is we do have a strong return on investment in that the youth we've tracked to age 21. We've been able to show that since 2009, uh, when we've begun the use of evidence-based practices, we have less youth progressing to the adult system and becoming
1: incarcerated. Mm. Like I said, uh, not enough time. A lot of other things I want to cover, and we will cover these uh, throughout the week on uh, Smart Talk. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Richard Steele, Executive Director, Juvenile Court Judges Commission in Pennsylvania. Sam Miller, Chief Juvenile Probation Officer in Cumberland County. And Ron Toro, Juvenile Public Defender in Cumberland County. Thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you, thank you
1: for the opportunity.
2: Support for Real Life Real Issues Juvenile Justice comes from the Cumberland County Bar Foundation.
1: Coming up tomorrow, it is a Smart Talk road trip. We will be at uh, Willow Valley Retirement Community in Lancaster County. Coming up later this year, filmmaker uh, Ken Burns has a really uh, lengthy project, uh, a very extensive project on the Vietnam War. We'll be talking about Vietnam coming up on tomorrow's program.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org.